Now the last chapter dealt with the primary issue of decentralizing government. The goal we stated was to decentralize as much as possible, ultimately leaving individuals as free as possible, dealing only with their local units of government. We also saw how America once had this ideal, how it was lost, and we talked about ways to begin taking it back. Well, now it's time to talk about the important role of states' rights in that endeavor. A vital linchpin in American history uh, related to the protection of local governments is that old notion of states' rights. Now, states' rights is a vital check on national tyranny. It is a vital link in true federalism, and it's a truer representation of the way America was settled and was founded. And I've already said in my last section that states' rights is not a good enough solution to national tyranny. But we need to note on top of that that if we recognize and restore their original role, states could provide certain great things. Number one, could be a necessary weakening of centralized tyranny. And number two, an umbrella of protection against the central government under which local governments can, or I might say must, uh, begin to work independently of federal regulation and interference. In fact, states could provide the needed impetus for local communities to develop greater independence. So in short, even if it's not a sufficient or an ultimate goal, states' rights may be a necessary step along the way. More importantly, it's vital for understanding just how bad federal tyranny has become. So for all of these reasons, and perhaps more, I'm going to include a chapter on it in this project. Now, as I said in the last topic, the American colonies were originally settled as feudal land grants. Feudal land grants, chartered by the English crown. Government was established based on fiefs of private property, owner control, and very clear contractual agreements between those levels of government. It's necessary here to remember that each colony was established as a separate ownership, separate charter, separate governments, separate jurisdictions. See, the oper operative word here in regard to the colonies, later states, was separate. When the colonies declared independence, they established themselves as sovereign states, not as a single nation. Now, this history, this fact of history, forms the basis for the old claims about states' rights. They had been largely ignored and maligned uh, since that time, but the argument is both viable and vital. So let's take a brief look at that. We've already covered much of the history regarding the nationalist takeover of this land, and so we'll only summarize here what we've already covered. And I might add a little bit on top of that. Within three decades of the ratification of the Constitution, so within the generation of those who debated it, virtually all the fears of the anti-federalist opponents of the Constitution had come true. Power had been centralized at the national level in regard to the judiciary, in regard to the military, taxation, legislation, commerce, and much else. Uh, nevertheless, while political power had been centralized in reality from day one because of that document, popular sentiment among the people remained very starkly divided. 
the majority of common Americans assumed the state's rights view, while the victorious party in the constitutional battle favored a nationalistic view that was legally now in place. The Jeffersonian party, who were called the Democratic Republicans, represented the majority of people, while the Federalist Party, uh, who were the Nationalists, were the ones who controlled the day. The, the debate over states' rights ultimately hinged upon the interpretation of the nature of the Declaration of Independence. The Anti-Federalists, and thus the later Jeffersonian side, uh, noted what seemed to be like common sense. Once the colonies had, according to the Declaration, dissolved the political bands that had connected them to the British crown, they immediately became, in a state of nature, 13, and this is quoting the Declaration, free and independent states, plural. Okay? These 13 countries, as we would understand their position today, recognized their need to band together for strength and thus united or confederated. In this unity, they declared their independence. And in this unity, they vowed to support each other in defending it. The same group that drafted the Declaration, and I'm talking about the same group of people who drafted the Declaration, immediately set about writing a constitution for the arrangement and the resulting uh, document that came out of that meeting was called the Articles of Confederation. It was finished in 1777. It was a confederation of separate states and it was ratified formally in 1781. And it stated very clearly in Article 2, quote, each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. The nationalist side of the debate, however, emphasized the unity at the expense of the plurality of the states. Now, their response to the anti-federalists was uh, that the colonies declared their independence not individually, but unitedly, and therefore that they had never been independent of one another. From that, the argument is clearly seen in the debates during the ratification period. And perhaps the most famous remark in this debate comes from Mr. Liberty or Death himself, Patrick Henry. And he complained of the Constitutional Convention in, the, in these words, quote, What right had they to say, we the people? My political curiosity, exclusive of my anxious solicitude for the public welfare, leads me to ask who authorized them to speak the language of we the people? instead of we, the states. States are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. If the states are not agents of this compact, it must be one great consolidated national government of the people of all the states. The people gave them no power to use their name. That they exceed their power is perfectly clear. And those were Henry's words. This argument threw down the gauntlet on the issue of nationalism. Everyone knew the Constitutional Convention had been resolved by Congress for a very specific purpose. And in the journals of Congress it says very clearly, quote, for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. And this meant honoring the sovereignty of the states which was written into those articles. 
But this was the very thing the forces behind the convention wished to change, and they got their way, but only at the disdain of what everyone clearly agreed upon. This move squarely contradicted the Articles of Confederation, and thus in doing so, they had to provide, the Nationalists had to provide some justification for why the Articles should not only be revised, but completely thrown out and replaced, which was illegal. Thus arose the new argument that the Articles of Confederation were a defective instrument which had departed from the true spirit of a single national people as allegedly expressed in the Declaration of Independence, and that the newly proposed Constitution was returning to that original principle. The new position was expressed eloquently, for example, by General Charles Cotsworth Pinckney, and he uh, was arguing in, in the South Carolina legislature in behalf of the Constitution, and this is what he had to say, quote, the separate independence and individual sovereignty of the several states were never thought of by the enlightened band of patriots who framed this declaration. The several states are not even mentioned by name in any part of it, as if it was intended to impress this maxim on America, that our freedom and independence arose from our union, and that without it we could neither be free nor independent. Let us then consider all attempts to weaken this union by maintaining that each state is separately and individually independent as a species of political heresy. Now, after Pinckney's position ultimately won the day, the victorious Federalist Party and its historical successors, the National Republicans and the Whigs and then the Republicans of the Lincoln administration and on, used this same argument as a means of suppressing the so-called political heresy of states' rights. The most vehement elocution of this position appeared when the National Republican John Quincy Adams gave a two-hour lecture, at least two hours, at the New York Historical Society in 1839 called the Jubilee of the Constitution. It was, after all, exactly 50 years after the Constitution. Adams said this, quote, a convention of delegates from 11 of the 13 states, with George Washington at their head, sent forth to the people an act to be made their own, speaking in their name and in the first person thus, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. This act was the complement to the Declaration of Independence, founded upon the same principles, carrying them out into practical execution, and forming with one entire system of national government. Again, that was John Quincy Adams speaking at his speech on the Jubilee of the Constitution, available, uh, by the way, in paperback from American Vision for, for historical study. Quincy followed just a few pages later in that same published book uh, with this further explanation, quote, it is not immaterial 
to remark that the signers of the Declaration, though qualifying themselves as the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, yet issue the Declaration in the name and by the authority of the good people of the colonies, and that they declare, not each one of the separate colonies, but the united colonies, free and independent states. The whole people declared the colonies in their united condition of right, free, and independent states. But there still remained the last and crowning act which the people of the Union alone were competent to perform, the institution of civil government for that compound nation, the United States of America. Again, that's from Adam's Jubilee on the Constitution. He carries on for pages extenuating that argument to the finest details of every situation, and yet for all of its detail and rigor, uh, you can easily get the idea that Adams is protesting just a little too much. For all of his preaching to the choir, it's important to remember that his particular choir was composed of a minority of the population, a particular political party, controlled mostly by wealthy interests, uh, financial interests, an entrenched minority, but a minority nonetheless. The Democratic-Republican Party had grown so overwhelmingly popular that the Federalist faction was forced into oblivion. Its nationalist sentiments only allowed to live on as they reemerged within a faction of the Democratic-Republican Party and called themselves the National Republicans. That was John Quincy Adams' party. Regardless of how institutionally victorious the nationalist cause had been uh, earlier, the sentiments of the state's rights still gripped a majority of Americans' uh, freedom-loving hearts all across America. So a very tense situation was brewing in which a major popular sentiment wished for states' rights and state control, more local control, and while the elites, on the other hand, such as Adams, continued to preach vehemently the, ne the necessary status of the Union and thus federal government domination. So, while I noted above that virtually all the fears and of the anti-federalist opponents of the Constitutions had come true, there remained one very important concern which had not yet materialized but was brewing. And this was expressed by one of the anti-federalist writers called the Federal Farmer, was likely Richard Henry Lee. He predicted, as many others did, that this thing would occur should the Constitution be forced through. Quote, The plan of government now proposed, which was the Constitution, is evidently calculated totally to change in our time our condition as a people. Instead of being 13 republics under a federal head, it is clearly designed to make us one consolidated government. This consolidation of the states has been the object of several men in this country for some time past. Whether such a change can be effected without convulsions and civil wars, whether such a change will not totally destroy the liberties of this country, time only can determine. Well, friends, time did tell. While the old debate between nationalists and states' rights advocates was settled on paper in Philadelphia with the Constitution, that settlement was not fully manifested until it was written in blood at Gettysburg. And at that site, famously, Lincoln gave his 
eulogy for states' rights, even if in a, an obscure way. He said, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. That was the heart of the debate, which Lincoln, who was victorious at Gettysburg, was affirming. The so-called fathers had not confederated several states. That was not the, not the way he saw it. They brought forth a single, one, a new nation. Or as the anti-federalists had so often warned, quote, one consolidated government. Now, of all the major advances that the Federalist Party touted as benefits of the new Constitution, not one was ever carried out successfully, eventually, without the force of arms. And the Civil War was only the climax of that movement in the force of arms. So despite how things were eventually settled, the Nationalists' argument in favor of the primacy of the government of the Union was not nearly as sound as Adams or Lincoln or any of their country would have us believe, for at least a few reasons. And I'd like to go over those briefly, just a few reasons. First, the language of the Declaration of Independence makes it very clear that the states, though they had united for a particular purpose, still viewed themselves as plural, independent sovereignties in doing so. Now, while the Declaration contained the language of, as Adams put, the right of the people and of one people, thus favoring, in some ways you could look at it, the Federalist side of the argument, that Declaration nevertheless concluded by speaking of the new independence, not of a single nation, but of, quote, free and independent states in the plural. These united colonies are and of a right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the, the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that, as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. So, there you have it. These united colonies are independent states. That's a very odd phrase if in fact the goal had been to create a single government. So, so, the, so often do the details make all the difference. And in fact it's of great importance when we notice just how even the capitalization, and you have to look at the documents to see this, of a single letter changes the whole nature of the discussion. In that final paragraph of the Declaration, the original text begins, we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America. United is not capitalized, States of America is. The same text refers to these united colonies. Note in both cases that the word united is not capitalized. It is, therefore, in the convention of writing at the time, a mere adjective and not part of the proper name. The phrase is not referring to a single government entity called the United States of America, but rather to the coming together of the colonies or the states of America. And yet when John Quincy Adams tells the story, he argues that the assembly which drafted the Declaration were, and these are the way, this is how he put it, 
qualifying themselves as the representatives of the, quote, United States of America, uh, he emphasizes not each of the separate colonies, but the United Colonies. And when he writes it, he capitalizes the U in United in both cases. So the, the assembly's mere adjective United becomes a proper name in the mind of the nationalist, and that was the basis of his reasoning. In other words, he imposed his view, his nationalist view, on the Declaration's own express words and its way of, of writing those words. In other words, he had to deny what those representatives' clear and very definite conclusion was in order to charge them with not concluding their job. So, that is, one, is basically fraud. Secondly, it's helpful in this regard to, to understand the usage of the term state in the Declaration. Today, Americans generally think of a state only in modern terms as one of those divisions within the United States as a nation. We tend to consider a state simply a secondary unit of government below federal or national government. A state is less than a nation. It's a constituent part of a nation. But at the time of the Declaration, this was not the case. A state was regarded as a free and independent, standalone unit of government subject to no other body. A nation was considered a lesser group, often based on only a common language, and there could be many of those within one state. Noah Webster, who wrote the definitions of, for the English language in America in 1828, in his famous dictionary, said this, a nation is, quote, uh, well, he said this under a nation, quote, it often happens that many nations are subject under one government. And when he goes to define state, he says this, quote, the whole body of people united under one government, whatever may be the form of the government. So you can see that a state was a more prominent part of government. A nation was simply a part of that. The Declaration did not declare the colonies free, a free and independent nation, or even a free and independent state, but clearly in the plural, as I said, free and independent states. And this put them on a parallel with Britain herself, which the document also calls a state as opposed to a nation, as we would view it today. The Declaration seems to equate each of the American states with the same status of the state of Britain, and thus exalts each one of those constituent states, as we would see them today, uh, to the level of what we call a nation today. And it says that, quote, as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which free and independent states uh, may of right do. All of those things are mere, uh, uh, are things that a mere constituent part of a single state would not of themselves rightly do. So in other words, they were considered what we would consider today as independent nations. Finally, the nationalist argument was an ad hoc novelty. It was conceived of only after the fact as a justification for the Constitution. It was not heard of, it was not explicated, certainly not publicly, by anyone before the convention or the ratification process. The states' rights doctrine, however, was immediately expressed after the Declaration in the Articles of Confederation. Okay? These were not challenged at the time. 
No one objected to them on the grounds that the colonies were actually, wait a minute, we're, we're acting as a united whole here. We can't write it like this. There was no objection like that. Whatever else can be said in defense of having a single powerful centralized national government, whatever pragmatic results come out of that to the, to the good in some people's view, is all to the side here. America was not originally settled that way. The colonies did not declare their independence that way. The original instrument of government, written by the same people who wrote the Declaration, literally days, weeks, months after they wrote the Declaration, with it fresh in their minds, did not confederate in that way. And thus, states' rights, in addition to our ideal of county rights, is the original American way. Now, whatever undesirable associations became associated with states' rights at a later time in history have to be set aside as history and not as the principle, not as the principal political philosophy, certainly for purposes of this discussion. Now, for further detailed discussion of this, I would recommend a book written by a man named James Jackson Fitzpatrick, The Sovereign States, Notes of a Citizen of Virginia. It's actually, uh, you can find it online for free. Um, however, granted, Fitzpatrick was writing in the 50s. He was writing in defense of segregation. But if all that is set aside and we look at the principle of what he's saying and the scholarship and the philosophy involved, okay, on especially the legal issues, he's very good. His writing's very warm and engaging. And it's a great book for those reasons. Now, we've already discussed a lot about how states' rights have been trampled and have been lost over the years. And there's still more to tell about that story, uh, no doubt. In the next discussion, we will cons we'll consider some of that uh, extra history of that, uh, but perhaps some of the lesser known aspects of it. So while we've already covered a great deal of it, we're going to cover some of it more that's going to be supplementary and it's going to be very illuminated. And that'll be in the next talk.